They say that the first step to handling a PR crisis is recognizing that you're in one. And if you fail to do that, what you may end up with is a scandal. You could compare a scandal to a hurricane. It's fast, destructive, can seem unstoppable. Also like hurricanes, it's important to be prepared beforehand and when it happens, to batten down the hatches and respond. Welcome to The Index, a podcast about economics, psychology, and the hidden business of everything from Rice University's Jones Graduate School of Business. I'm your host, Saul Elbein, and today we're going to talk about the science of scandal, how they start, how they end, and what to do when you're caught in one. With me in the studio is Tim Taliaferro. Hi, Saul. At South by Southwest, in between scandalously good music and between rounds of scandalously good beer, he sat down with a scholar of scandal, Anastasia Zavyalova, who studies business ethics and reputation management, and what happens when companies mess those things up. Tim, tell us a little bit about who she is and how one becomes a scholar of scandal. Happy to, Saul. So Annie, as she told me to call her, grew up in Kazakhstan. She was a big Agatha Christie fan. She loved mysteries. And she grows up right at the end of communism and the rise of predatory capitalism. And she ends up moving to the U.S. and later enrolling at the University of Maryland for her Ph.D. When she eventually starts her career, she's very idealistic. I'm sensing a dramatic shift in the plot coming. Oh, yeah. What happened was Mattel, the toy company, gets caught using lead paint in its toys, and she's fascinated. And so that was my first study that I um, conducted while in grad school. And from then, from there on, it was, um, you know, the dark side drew me in, and that's it. I started studying scandals and negative events. So from business ethics to maybe lack of business lack, ethics. Yeah, un- or far of a job, unethical just, behaviors yeah, yeah. or decisions, yes. Yeah. Well, one good thing, I guess, about studying scandal is there's never a shortage of material, I would think. That's true. Right? Yes, you have to be really selective and strategic about what you study. It might be worth just zooming back for a second here. And mm-hmm. why, why does a, a business professor study reputation or scandals? Like, what is the link between scandal and business or the management of a business and the risk of scandal? To me, it's very direct and obvious. So when you ask, what do you think are the most uh, important assets for your company? Um, The two biggest ones they would mention is people and reputation. Mm. And that's great. And we have HR offices and all these big companies. Who is responsible for reputation? Everybody, which means nobody really, right? Maybe sometimes CEO gets involved and that's it. So she's written recently on how people should respond to one of the biggest, festering, long-running scandals of them all, the Catholic Church abuse scandal. And you asked her how she would grade them if she was going to grade them on their handling of it. Well, since she's a professor of scandal, I figured she could grade them. What would its grade be? It would be a bad grade, maybe, well, an F probably. Um, bec- well, and, I'll, and I, I can explain why. So um, if you recall, in 2002, Boston Archdiocese was involved in the scandal, right? That was the beginning of this uh, huge lingering scandal, which is one of the reasons why I would give it an F, right? It's been going on for now decades. It's, uh, it wasn't just the Band-Aid was ripped off and the wound healed, right? Instead, it just keeps going on and on and on. It's festering, maybe. It is. Like I said, I mean, it's decades now. Abuse continued to occur, and that's another reason I would give it an F, because it wasn't targeted right there and then, which, I mean, I know, again, maybe this is a, an idealist in me coming out, but I think if there's a crisis and you see the red flags, it's time to kind of you know, address it right there and then instead of trying to 
cover things up. Uh, and, you know, like in, in the Catholic Church, a part of the handling of the crisis was, you know, changing a priest or moving them from place to place. That's what we saw in Philadelphia too, if you see kind of, if you follow the biographies of these priests, right? So once there was a credible accusation and some of them were, you know, um, transgression is not a transgression is not a transgression. So some of them had, um, you know, videotapes of kids um, being molested, but some actually raped nine-year-old boys, um, right? So when you see that and you know that's a credible accusation, what do you do as a leader, so to speak, of the, of, the, of the company, in this case of this huge organization? Well, what Catholic Church's solution was to move them to this one house, and they called it life of penance and prayer. That's another way, another reason I would give it an F. That was not how a scandal should have been handled, right? It's not really a punishment, I guess. Some of them- Go quietly away. Hey, Tim, some of them ended up, so one guy, I, I, I don't recall his name now, but one of these priests ended up in the Philippines running a house which is like a school for teenage boys. Do you think that's a great solution? <laughs> so she's saying one key to handling a scandal is, well, handling it and they haven't done that. Right, and she talks a lot about this. Over 80% of the value of companies is in intangible assets. And of those, the biggest is reputation. And she offers some takeaways for CEOs in companies under fire. You have to be proactive about managing reputation. You can't discount the power of social media to help or hurt you. You need someone in charge of reputation. Right, because as she says, if everyone is in charge, then no one is. Sure. It kind of sounds like the big takeaway is you kind of have to steer into the skid a little bit. Did the church do that? Well, it might be starting to now. The Pope recently convened a bunch of cardinals to talk about the sexual abuse scandal in the church. You're seeing individual dioceses release names of accused members of the clergy and priests who have credible accusations against them. Uh, but the thing that's really staggering about this is that, as she points out, this abuse has been going on since the 70s, at least. And the reporting on it really came to a head starting in 2002 in Boston. A lot of these cases have been going on for a long, long time, and it's only now it seems like the church is really starting to take it seriously. Right, which looking at the Pope almost like he's a CEO, this scandal has been part of the church under three popes. The abuse has been a problem for a lot longer. So, okay, you're Francis, you're the new guy, you're on the scene for this problem that started long before you got there, before you came to the Vatican. What do you do? I asked her that exact question. Well, so let's say the, the Pope Francis gets on the phone, he calls you, and he says, Annie, what do I do? <laughs> Hey, that's why I'm an academia. I'm not a CEO of a big company. <laughs> yeah, my answer is always, well, it depends. And that's, that, like I said, that's why I, like, I look at a thousand different angles of a problem. I can't just say, do this. But having is it, do you think the Pope has to handle this at this stage? Absolutely. It has to be acknowledged and addressed at the top of the leadership chain. I think that's, that's a big part of the issue that was kind of delegated to cardinals, archbishops kind of locally, you know, oh, Philadelphia, it's your problem, deal with it kind of thing, right? Um, I think the good thing that uh, is resulting from all of this is that kind of 
parishioners took it upon themselves to figure out, okay, what do we do and how do we deal with this problem? And that's when these organizations like uh, the Voice of the Faithful started forming. So when the larger institutions failed to step up in a meaningful way, the grassroots did instead. That's actually where this line of study starts to have some conclusions that go way beyond the church. Because while the particulars may be specific to the church, almost all industries have to deal with these big questions around governance, transparency, making sure when bad stuff happens, it gets stopped, and then making changes that last. And the other thing is, for all big brands that people identify with, from religions to football teams to clothes, there are two separate groups of people that you have to think about when you are handling a scandal. The two groups are the faithful and the casual. And what's interesting, and you'll see, is you really have to treat them differently and approach them almost completely in the opposite way during a scandal. Do you think that the Catholic Church is in existential danger from this crisis? I know that's a little um, loaded, it, but it, I mean, like, this, um, do you think the organization of Roman Catholicism is in some sort of actual danger of either literal or moral bankruptcy? I'll, I'll tell you this. So I observe, no, not just me, but people who study religion in general, observe kind of de decline in religiosity, not just in the US again. Um, so that's definitely a, a, you know, a bigger scale uh, change that's happening, trend that's happening. Within the Catholic Church, just like you know, if we look at other organizations, there are different types of what we call in, in business stakeholders, right? Um, so some Catholics uh, are dedicated Catholics, some are occasional Catholics. So the occasional ones are go to like Easter and Christmas and I'm done. Yeah, I'm Catholic, but that's it, right? So for them, withdrawal from the church probably would be an easier solution, right? But for the dedicated ones, people who really identify as Catholics, for whom it's a big part of their identity, leaving the church would be, um, you know, like a surgically removing a limb on your body or something, because that's who you are. You're defined by your faith, right? Um, and a big part of, you know, being Catholic is being a part of a parish and uh, talking to other Catholics. So in, if for those people, I think it's not going to be an easy decision to move the church. In fact, those are the people who form these types of organizations, like the Voice of the Faithful, and they, what, what we call in business, like they experience this split identification where they do identify with the lessons, the Bible, what the Catholic Church stands for, but they do disidentify from specific leaders who were engaged in these types of scandals, right? It's a very difficult state to be in, but those are the people who can actually help the church survive and reform itself. So that makes it sound like there's kind of an opportunity in a scandal. Yes. In fact, Annie talks about this. The only thing worse than the scandal of like people finding out about it is that it never being found out and right. it just continuing on. That's the only thing worse than the scandal. Is there such a thing as silver linings in scandals? Um, I think so. I've been trying to find this <laughs> because it's just, uh, you know, if you're working on, on this topic for a while, it becomes really gloomy and depressing. So I've, I've been trying recently, at least, uh, to find the silver, silver lining. Um, obviously, the fact that this becomes revealed allows for other victims to come forward, right? And it's no longer, uh, you have to hold it inside, just like the Me Too movement, right? It's no longer kind of your story, but it's a part of a broader story. And this is what's interesting about scandals. They have an opportunity or a chance to change the social structure, 
change the social order, right? So in the Catholic Church example, it would be these types of organizations that are popping up and deciding that, okay, maybe we gave too much of an authority and decision-making power to very few people, and it's an opportunity for us to revamp and have this you know, Catholic Church 2.0 kind of thing. I think that's the silver lining in that is it the, the scandals can be an opportunity for improving self-governance. So you said that the Catholic Church was a good model for other organizations who are trying to think about scandals. Can you spell that out for me? Well, not to overstate this, but as we're recording this, it's March Madness time. And there is something that people feel pretty religious about, NCAA and NCAA sports. So this sounds like a wild topic jump. It is. Annie was trying to study how institutions respond to shocks outside their control, and she thought, Ah, what's more outside your control than a murder? Let's see how students and alumni react when a school has a murder. Oh, because then for some people, maybe the school gets associated with murder. And in business research, you can't just make a murder happen in a lab. You have to wait and see when it happens. Well, for better or for worse, there are not as many murders on campuses in the U.S. universities. So I went to That's study. That's for better. That's <laughs> for definitely better. for better. <laughs> yes. So I had a small, small N, I guess, I would put it that way, in my dissertation. So I started uh, working on NCAA scandals. And that has a larger N. Uh, and these vary from um, you know, having escort services come to recruitment events and enticing student athletes to come to us because look, I mean, these are the people you'll be hanging out with. Look at these pretty with. girls and yes. how they, yes. yeah. Um, some would be um, more or less mundane, but nonetheless against NCAA rules like covering uh, book, books for the student athletes or um, I don't know, maybe like buying a car for a student athlete or like in, at, at UNC creating fake classes so the student athletes have a certain level of GPA so that they can compete uh, for, for the university. And so I was looking at how once it's revealed, once that knowledge became public that this is what our uh, athletic department is involved in, how does it affect donations from alumni and non-alumni. So for this context specifically, these were the two stakeholder groups I was looking at, but if we extrapolate it to kind of other types of organizations, it was about people who identify and not really identify with an organization, right? So alumni, just like dedicated Catholics, are those stakeholders for whom who establish relationships with your organization, right? For whom that organization is a part of their identity. Uh, and so they tended to increase donations. So if, if, we, if I look at these infractions and they become public, alumni actually tend to increase donations to the university. Wow. Up to an inflection point though. So it's not like you can just run wild and you know, do all kinds of things. The more scandals, the more <laughs> exactly, the money the more rolls money. in. So it goes like this, like it's an inverted U shape, but okay. if it's severe enough, then alumni kind of you know, start withholding. So it's easier again for them to withdraw, right? They kind of wait and see what happens with the scandal. So they don't want kind of their name to be associated with this tainted organization. So these are kind of like your faithful Catholics who reform the Church of Louisville from the inside. Yes, exactly. They circle their wagons and they commit themselves. So who would be the less committed stakeholders in this analogy? Non-alumni. Like the uncommitted Catholics, they tend to just fade out. They don't have any investment. They don't want their names to be associated with the scandal. And they take their support and their money elsewhere. So in a crisis, then, is there strategy to be done between like, all right, how do we talk to our true believers and how do we talk to people who are not maybe in the cult of whatever it is? Our 
Right, so I think with the true believers, you have to make sure you don't lose them, right? And so maybe pointing to the fact that we, you know, we have that relationship, pointing to that connection, what value the organization brought to them, those are the people that can help you survive the crisis, right? Those are the dedicated Catholics who help the church, uh, you know, resurrect. Okay, so for the alumni, for the committed stakeholders, you kind of want to rally the troops. What about for the less committed ones, for the prospective students? You have to be much more emphasizing the facts. Like you need to tell them this is what we're doing, this is the investigation, this is who we're working with, uh, and be more technical about your responses. So I, I talked to fans when I was working on this study and I talked to them about the scandals. I was asking them, hey, what do you guys think? And they actually said, I don't care as long as we keep winning. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Which, you know, from, from kind of an academic standpoint, I think, all right, well, that makes sense because it wasn't really abuse of, right, who are the victims? Maybe students who lost the scholarship, but I guess the severity of consequences of transgressions is not as bad as in the Catholic Church, right, when a, a child's life took turn for the worst after the abuse, right? And so maybe in that sense, it's kind of a, yes, it's a scandal, but fans you know, tend to forgive us as long as we keep winning, and that's probably why they keep occurring because they know that they'll pay fine and they'll you know, continue to be, and they'll continue to have those fans. So one thing I remember you telling me about this researcher, if we're going to talk about the scandals of sports, is that she is a huge Patriots fan. So she knows what it's like to hang in there after a scandal. Oh yeah, we got into that. Well, I discovered as we were talking in the last few days that you're a Patriots fan. So I have to <laughs> you ask can you hate me Patriots. now. <laughs> okay, I have to ask you as a Patriots. How about, can I, can I say Tim? I'm a, a Tom Brady fan okay. since 2003. Right. <laughs> so if you move to you. another team, I'm going to root for that team. <laughs> <laughs> well, they went through, as you know, Deflate Gate in 2015, and then now their owner is in some uh, trouble. Uh, there's allegations that he was behaving badly in Florida. <laughs> what? Um, I think they're allegations. I don't know. Is it? They're allegations. Is it yeah. I think it's allegations. Okay, so. This is an example of something happening more or less in real time. What, what as a fan of the Patriots, <laughs> what are you wanting them to do here? What's oh, the nothing, right just keep winning. <laughs> <laughs> what Annie said was, first of all, she's going to be a Tom Brady fan no matter what. But when it comes to the Patriots, she's devoted, so she's going to wait and see what happens, and then she's going to make up her mind when the facts come in. It's still all speculative, which for identifying stakeholder like myself creates uncertain, enough of uncertainty where I can interpret it however I want. <laughs> um, but we'll see. I mean, we'll, uh, we'll see what uh, unfolds. The other important question is whether it's going to be a real scandal is can you point to specific victims? Another thing to, to point out about this one, I think if the media spins the scandal in terms of which some of the articles, some of the journalists are doing it now, in terms of sex slave and sex slave trade and all of this, then yes, that, that can become quite a negative uh, story specifically for the Patriots, right? So in a scandal when there's, um, you identify the victim, right, and you empathize with the victim, that can become a really severe scandal for the organization. But if it's, uh, you know, if it's a story about just engaging, you know, you know, hiring prostitutes who were willing to do this anyways, yes, I mean, it's, you know, we're, we're straddling kind of moral uh, boundaries, but, you know, if they're both parties were consenting to this act, then. So this gets into a really interesting question, which concerns a gray area the place where there are rumors, but the scandal hasn't yet broken. Right. 
this is again like Robert Kraft. It's sort of a scandal because it's alleged, but it's not a real scandal to the faithful because it hasn't yet been proven. So my question is then, what do companies do in ambiguous cases? Which brings us back to where Annie's story really begins with Mattel. When the Chinese lead paint on toys scandal broke, there were a lot of other companies caught in the crossfire, and it was ambiguous because they were toy companies, but they weren't being specifically named. So the question was, how involved are they? Yes, this is an interesting phenomenon that she studies and has discovered, and she calls it the spillover effect. You mentioned that your first research was in the toy scandals. And there, when I was reading about this, you discovered an interesting concept called the spillover effect. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you can explain what that is. Yes, uh, absolutely. So scandals in general uh, tend to be such events that it's not just the perpetrator organization that's involved, but it can kind of trickle down onto other organizations, which can become hostages um, of the situation. So in the uh, toy example, RC2, Mattel, a really big event, uh, really big name organizations, right? And so what the media and journalists <laughs> tend to do is to say, US toy industry is uh, infested with scandal and lead has this and this effects on childhood development and so on. Oh, okay. So US toy industry is what journalists called it and not one or two specific manufacturers, so everyone gets tarred with the same lead paint-covered brush. So let's say you're Hasbro. The industry's getting trashed, but you're not being mentioned by name. What do you do? You have got to be proactive. And depending on the situation, how you respond depends on whether you're being fairly or unfairly splashed. Well, what was interesting to me is I was putting myself in the head of like a competitor of Mattel. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, okay, is this an opportunity for me? Or should I actually be worried that I'm in, a, I'm in the splash zone here and it could come to me? Right. So in that study, we looked at what kind of press releases companies uh, were issuing during that scandal. And if you are the company responsible for the product, for defective toys, uh, for the lead in, uh, in paint in your toys, you have to issue technical press releases, we call them, right? So you have to say what you're doing. You fired this manager or you're increasing safety standards in your factory. But if you start saying, hey, um, Hannah Montana is having a concert to, you know, to, to PR this Barbie doll, that backfired for these companies. But if you are what we call kind of guilty by association, right? So, so you are that uh, poor bystander organization that just got lumped into this whole industry, it actually helps to make these types of PR events that can distinguish you from the guilty peers. Yes, that, that could be an opportunity. So you can say, explain, at least in the press releases, this is what we're doing, this is how we are not like them, and these are the types of promotions and concerts and people we're affiliating with. And that can uh, help you kind of use that uh, scandal in your competitor's organization as an opportunity for you to gain business, I guess. That's important enough marketing and crisis management advice that I want to emphasize it. She's saying, if a scandal happens in your organization, there really is only one option. Face up to it honestly. Because if you try to do an image management, butter won't melt in our mouths, PR push, people will see through it and they will think less of you. Yeah, if you do the wrong thing, it can make it worse. So it's like throwing water on a grease fire, folks. Let's sum up. If you want to avoid a scandal, the best way to do it is address the problem, be honest, rally the faithful, tell the truth to the undecided, and as hard as it may be, you have to keep straight on through to the other side. Also remember, what makes a scandal, and not just bad press, 
is the cover-up. So don't cover up. And if you're a consumer, remember that, much as it pains me to admit it, journalists can be a little sloppy in their business reporting, and they can tar industries a little bit indiscriminately. That's a good point, Saul. On the next episode, we'll talk with Professor Eric Dane about the life-changing insights known as epiphanies, and how to prepare the sort of ground in which they can grow. You know, but this is something that's so remarkable to me about epiphanies is that, you know, we, we trend towards stability in life in terms of our attitudes and our beliefs and we become more sort of entrenched in who we are and what career we're doing and what we believe to be about, true about the world. But at these sort of unpredictable sudden moments, some people do experience this sort of untethering of uh, these things that are binding them toward a rigid view of self and they create new meaning in terms of who they are and where they're going. It's always struck me as quite, a, quite an amazing thing. Tim, I'll see you next time. Looking forward to it, Saul. The Index is a production of Rice Business in collaboration with Texas Monthly Studio. I'm Melissa Reese, executive producer. Our show is engineered and produced by Brian Standifer, who also wrote our theme music. Our moderators are Tim Taliaferro and Carlos Sanchez. The Index is written and hosted by Saul Elbon. For more business insights, visit business.rice.edu backslash wisdom.